Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Robert Hilburn is a noted music writer and biographer who lives in Los Angeles, California. Born in 1939, Hilburn was about 30 years old when he assumed the role of chief pop music critic for the Los Angeles Times, a post he held between 1970 and 2005, and he has written extensively about artists such as Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Joni Mitchell, and Bruce Springsteen, among many, many others. In May of 2018, Simon & Schuster published Hilburn's book, Paul Simon, The Life, the first and only fully authorized biography of Simon, who granted Hilburn interviews with himself and many of the closest figures in his long career as an American songwriter, singer, and musician. Robert and I had a nice long chat about his own trajectory as a writer and critic and why and how he chose to delve into the artistry of Paul Simon. With in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and Planet of Sound locations in Ottawa and Toronto, and, of course, flexible monthly pledges by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Control. This is the 395th episode of Creative Control, featuring the great Robert Hilburn with your host, me, Vish Khanna. You don't have a wristband. You don't get through the door And I said wristband I don't need a wristband My axe is on the bandstand My band is on the floor Hi Bob, how are you? Hi Vish, I'm fine, thanks it's Nice to have you on the show Where, where in the world are you as we're speaking, first of all? Sitting uh, in my office, I live in Los Angeles, and uh, the same desk I wrote the Johnny Cash book, uh, and the same book I used to write hundreds of reviews for the LA Times, and where I wrote this Paul Simon book. So it's a comfortable place for me. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an acclaimed desk. I, I might say <laughs> that's a, that's an important desk you're at, if I might say. 
Rudy disc. But <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on this new book, uh, Paul Simon, The Life. It's it's wonderful. Thank you. Now, I want to say something to you right away. First of all, I know from my own experience when I engage in the entire life history of an artist, at the end of it, I'm I'm both elated, I'm exhausted. How are you feeling now that you're finished with uh, your work on Paul Simon? Oh, I feel good, you know, because Vichy was a real challenge. You know, I mean, I didn't realize how big a challenge it was when I started the book, but he's such a complex person, you know, to try to capture... I wanted to capture two things. I wanted to tell his personal story, because that's what a biography is, but I also wanted to use Paul as a case study almost of what artistry is, how it comes about, how true artistry comes about, which very few songwriters really have, and then how you protect it against uh, fame, wealth, divorce, drugs, uh, changes in public taste, uh, fear of failure, because... I noticed over the years so many of the great songwriters drop out after 10 years of great work or after 15 years of great work or after 20. And and almost everybody from the 60s and early 70s had pretty much lost their peak music. But Simon continues at this age to make music that I think can stand up comfortably by his early work. Yeah, I was just today listening to Stranger to Stranger uh, again for the first time since it probably came out. And, or, well, that's not exactly true. But anyway, I, it's remarkable. What a way to go out if, if he's indeed going out, you know? It really is. Uh, I love that song, Stranger to Stranger. Uh, and it's really about some problems he had in his own marriage with Edie Brickell. And he wanted, you know, they had to reestablish their relationships. That's the song. Imagine if you entered my life for the first time today mm-hmm. and then they were starting over. Well, you mentioned that you wanted to, to, to try to delve into artistry specifically through the, the life and times of Paul Simon. W- what did you come away with there in terms of what distinguishes him from maybe other artists you've delved into in terms of their lives? You know, I'm really, really elated that that, that the investigation, if you want to use that word, turned out so well. Mm. because taught me so much about songwriting, what good songwriting is, and how uh, unique Paul Simon is. There's a reason he's lasted all this time at the top level in pop music. I think if you took a list of the great songwriters ever in pop music, I'm talking about the the Ten Pan Alley era and the rock era, Paul Simon would be high on that list. It's because of his two things, his determination of all the things I mentioned earlier, fame, money, uh, it's music that matters most. You, he never he saw what happened to Elvis Presley, so he never he was always worried about fame. He tried to be a private person, not become part of the pop music tabloid. He was always focusing on the music, that dedication. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know, but what was interesting to me is, I found he wasn't a natural born songwriter. I mean, I thought he just came out of the cradle <laughs> writing songs, you know. But he didn't. He he started. He, he didn't even get interested in pop music till he was around 13. So he wasn't a kid who sat at the piano at age three and played a, you know, a, a concerto, or he wasn't writing poetry in school books. He was just a kid having fun playing baseball. Then he finds pop music, and then he starts writing songs, copying what's on the radio, songs like his favorite artists, like Elvis Presley, like the Everly Brothers, like uh, the doo-wop groups. And it was all kind of poor, mediocre music. And for five years he did that. Isn't yeah. that amazing? Yeah. 
Simon, who we think of as just making one great album after the other, spent five years doing the most mediocre stuff you could imagine, nothing that was worth a damn. And then, because certain things happened in his life, and that's where the book really kicks in, he became the writer he is. You you assert you just asserted, and you do so in the book as well, that he is really one of the all-time great songwriters. And for some people listening, that's a basic fact. That's inarguable. But is there a part of you that thinks he's given short shrift in, in the grand sort of tradition of, of great American songwriting? Yes, absolutely, because he he never had the persona that matched the music. Like Springsteen, David Bowie, Dylan, the Beatles, they all had this extra-large persona. They were public figures. People followed them. Bruce Springsteen, you know what's going on in their life. Paul re- removed himself from all that. You didn't know what was going on in his life, so the only thing you knew about him was his music. You didn't have this image of an interesting character to go along with it. Plus, Paul kept changing. If you, you know, Dylan and Springsteen and Neil Young and the Rolling Stones, for all their greatness, they tend to work within a limited range. You know what Springsteen vaguely is going to do. You know what Neil Young's vaguely going to do. You know what Dylan's vaguely going to do. But Paul Simon, that's the reason he left Simon and Garfunkel. He had so much ambition. He knew you have to keep changing. You have to keep growing to, to last. Otherwise, you'll end up like the Rolling Stones and tour for 30 years over music you did 40 years ago. <laughs> well, there's a there's something to be said about some of the artists you just mentioned because when they had tried to embrace change they were seen as trend hopping you know trying to be fashionable betraying their core but Paul's core does seem to be ever evolving he seems gen- like a genuinely genuine based on his music anyway like you say his persona is a, a private one but based on his music he seems like a genuinely curious person Yes, and he absolutely is. He's as smart as hell. You know, he's thoughtful. That's one of the frustrations sometimes of interviewing him. He takes a question seriously. (laughs) A lot of musicians I talk to, they kind of have answers, kind of stock answers. They go to over and over again. You know, some, not all, but I'm saying some of them. And a lot of them. But Paul thinks about something, and he realized that, that, see, it begins with the way he writes a song. To my mind, he first of all, he writes music and lyrics. The music is as important to him as the lyrics. That, that, that's not true of, of Dylan, for instance. Dylan, I've interviewed Bob about this. He takes old songs and kind of revamps them a little bit, you know, old melodies. Bruce works within the same type of, of music and stuff. They don't create music every time. They're basically wordsmiths. But Paul realized that he... That, that music was important, and the way he writes, he doesn't come up with a theme like I would or you might and say, oh, I want to write a song today about the world's problems, or I want to write a song today about how lonesome I am, hmm. or I want to write a song today about how I'm looking for a girlfriend. He comes up with the music first. He starts playing a piano or, or, or a guitar, and he picks at it until something in the music strikes him as, oh, that's interesting, or that's warm, or that's evocative, then the key thing is, he says, well, now, what is, how can I say in words what that music is making me feel? And then he takes it one line at a time. He'll come up with the first line, and usually in his songs, the first couple lines are true. He likes to start off with something that's real. Then he looks at that line and says, well, now, what does that lead me to think? And that's the way he actually builds a song, sometimes over weeks or months. Yeah. But it's it's by discovery. He discovers 
his theme. Like Fellini, the great director, one time said, you can only make a movie from an original script. You can't take a book or a play and redo it because so much of your imagination is limited. And that's what Paul does. He takes everything. He starts off with the original script every time. It's it's always the idea of discovery. And it, it, one of the things I love in the book is he he talks about some of the lyrics and he tells about how one lyric came out of all you know kind of his subconscious. And it took his breath away because it was so personal. Hmm. But wait, that's I think that subconscious is part of the, a strong part of his process. He he lets the psych the subconscious help guide him. Well, listen, I can't dispute anything you've said about Paul there, and, and I think you've, you've put it rather eloquently, but as someone who's seen Bob Dylan upwards of 60 times, I must take exception to some of your ribbing there, because I don't think it's actually, I think Dylan's eras, you know, his different modes are truly fascinating, and I, I, I'm enamored of them. I go see him five, six, if, if he's coming through the area or if I can get there, you know, I'll go see him five, six times on a tour and always leave feeling like no show is the same and and I and I do think that in the book there is this jockeying between Paul and 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 Dylan about Paul Simon and Dylan in terms of Bob is respected for his body of work Paul for some reason is not as respected by like kind of cool people if you will and and I mean I I remember I interviewed Grill Marcus a few years ago and he take he took a special moment to criticize the work of Paul Simon, and I found it rather surprising. There seems to be, would you agree, is there some sort of weird, quiet, critical competition between Paul Simon and Bob Dylan? Well, I think there was uh, early, uh, because, I mean, Paul admits that he would never have written The Sound of Silence without Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan got him started. He inspired him. But also he knew he couldn't beat Bob Dylan at that game. He couldn't beat Bob Dylan at writing those kind of, uh, folky, the boxer kind of song. So the, the boxer was, he wrote, he said, this is my last Bob Dylan song. <laughs> wrote that, and it's great because Dylan actually recorded it. And I don't mean by any measure to, to, to demean Bob Dylan. He's great. I mean, he's the most important songwriter ever because he he started this whole rock and roll era. He brought, you know, if I love rock and roll. I loved Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry, but I would have probably gotten over it by the time I was in my, you know, t- mid-20s because it was ju- it was teenage. But Bob Dylan brought thought to it. He, You could express ideas in it, and that's what made rock and roll live. And that's what influenced Paul Simon. He heard that, you know, this, his freewheeling album, and that made him dig deeper in himself. And, of course, he wanted Dylan's approval, and there were a couple scenes early that I think the first Simon and Garfunkel concert at a club in New York, Dylan was in the back of the room and started giggling in the middle of the show. And Paul thought he was trying, you know, being disrespectful, but apparently Dylan had been drinking a bit with a friend and they were laughing about something else, not about Simon and stuff. And they left because they didn't want to be embarrassing. So it was a little bit of, and also people kept comparing Simon to Dylan, and usually not favorable, you know, because Dylan was first. They said, oh, he's kind of copying uh, what Dylan did. And that's why Paul moved away from it so fast. By the time of, let's say, Mrs. Robinson, you know, he was way away from Bob Dylan. There was no connection. He was writing, again, he was writing music, not just the music. And uh, then Bird of Trouble Water, then Me and Julio. There's nothing at Bob Dylan after, largely after The Boxer. But people kept making that comparison often during the 70s that somehow Paul is a second-rate Bob Dylan. Hmm. And the point is he's not a second-rate Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is an absolute A-plus, but Paul Simon is an absolute A-plus, too, over the body of their work. In terms of influence, no one's ever going to beat Dylan. 
you know, as of now. But in terms of the body of work, you know, if you put the body of work there, I think it's very close. I, I can't dispute that on on some level. Again, I'm I'm, uh, and I I do find it ironic that the scene you're describing and at that first Simon and Garfunkel show, uh, the way you depict it in the book, uh, Dylan is actually sitting with Robert Shelton, uh, yep. <laughs> his own uh, journalist and biographer on some level. Uh, you know, the one he he was close to. So it's kind of funny. I, you're you're Paul's Bob, and Bob had his Bob, and it's kind of you know, there's something going on there. And the one thing, I've interviewed Bob uh, 10 times, maybe as much as anybody. And one of my greatest nights was in Amsterdam in early 2000s. I, was, I wanted to do a series on songwriting for the creative process for the, for the, the L.A. Times. And I, Bob agreed to, to listen to me. And Bob's very different sometimes. Sometimes he's the warmest person. Sometimes he's just not interested. And, you know, so you never know what you're going to get. So I flew to Amsterdam very nervous, wondering how much time he was going to give me and whether he was going to be really he's talking clearly as opposed to just kind of, uh, you know, wandering around. And so we get in, and it's about how do you write songs? That was the the question. Mm-hmm. And he sits down, and he starts talking for an hour and a half, he, you know, and then there's a knock on the door. And those knocks on the door is a chance for the artist to end the interview because the road manager comes in and says, oh, it's time now, Mr. Dillon, for your dinner or your next interview. And Bob put his hand up and said, give us another hour. So can you imagine how excited I was? Then the guy comes around in an hour and Bob says, it's okay, we're okay for the evening. And we talked six hours that night. And then at the end of the interview, get this, he says, are you going to be in town for the show tomorrow night? And I said, sure. He says, well, why don't we get together again in case you have any more questions? Nine hours. Wasn't that fabulous? <laughs> that is, uh, you know, I've been chasing, a in my lowly status, I've been chasing a Bob Dylan interview for many years. So you've made me incredibly jealous. <laughs> The thing is, I, I see. I, I love songwriting. I love creating a process. So, in a sense, this book grew out of that. I said, "How can I talk about songwriting from a person, you know, who has, has been doing it for all these years, made all these changes?" Uh, and that's what that's what that's the heart of the book to me is is exploring his songwriting process, his Paul's songwriting process. Absolutely. Now, I, I do want to delve into your work a little bit as it relates to Paul's uh, ascent. Uh, my understanding is that you were a freelancer at the Los Angeles Times in 1969, but then you became the music editor in 1970. Is that correct? Yeah, I was the first music critic at the Los Angeles Times because newspapers were slow in America to pick up on rock and roll. When the Beatles played the Hollywood Bowl in the in the 60s, the Times sent a teenager to review the show just to give his impressions because they thought they thought only teenagers were interested in rock and roll. So, but by 1970, things had changed enough to where I was hired full time. Did that have, did that have something to do with the rise of sort of underground magazines? I include among them, you know, Rolling Stone. I know Playboy was doing some cultural criticism at the time as well, but Rolling Stone seemed to mark a sea change in terms of rock criticism. Is that fair? I think it is, but I think more than anything, I think Woodstock did it. When when they, this this changed everything. This changed television. This changed advertising. When pe- when people saw what it was, half a billion people or whatever it was, upstate New York, that you know that was what changed it. This is this is a major social force. Right. So what you you I know you you've you've clearly uh, you know indicated that you are a lover of of songwriters and and great music. What actually prompted you to begin trying to write rock criticism? 
Well, I loved rock and roll and movies uh, since as a kid. You know, I loved Elvis and and uh, and then the Beatles and Dylan and so forth. And I was a new I was a newspaper right I was a reporter in a newspaper. And I you would get calls sometimes at three in the morning to go out and cover a shooting <laughs> or a flood or something. And I said, geez, I don't want to live my life being get waking up every morning and covering something I often even don't care about. Okay. So what did I find to write about? that I really wouldn't mind working 24 hours a day. And so the, it was the two things were music and movies. And I thought I, I, thought I didn't know enough about the history of film to be a mu- movie critic, but I really didn't think I knew rock and roll. I knew it from the beginning. I mean, I heard, I was a fan of Elvis Presley before Heartbreak Hotel. I heard his early Sun records. Uh, and so I was very confident I could write about music, and I thought that would be a wonderful way to spend my time. <laughs> I, I've chosen the same path, and I agree with you. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I want to ask you about, because in 2013 you released this, uh, you pu- rather this acclaimed biography about Johnny Cash was published, and Johnny Cash means the world to me. I know he means the world to lots of people, but it, just from an early age I was really uh, struck by him, and uh, I the first concert I ever saw at uh, Massey Hall in Toronto was... Johnny Cash and his family in 1996. So that resonates. Wow. Yeah, it, 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 he means the world to me. And uh, and you got to hang out with him a little bit. Like you covered the the Folsom Prison uh, shows. Yeah. When I in back in the time I was trying to convince the Los Angeles Times to hire me as a pop critic, they said, "Well, do a couple stories. Let's see what you can do." And so I said, "Okay." I looked around at what's going on, and someone told me Johnny Cash was going to do a concert at Folsom Prison. I said, wow, what better thing can that? The guy who wrote Folsom Prison Blues doing a concert singing the song to prisoners at Folsom Prison. And the funny thing about it was the concert was not publicized or anything. Columbia Records had tried to do a prison concert earlier with Cash, but he was in such a bad state drug-wise that he didn't show up for the concert. So they were afraid he wouldn't show up again, so they didn't invite anybody to the concert. I got invited because a disc jockey who had read some of my stories in the paper thought I might be interested, and I went along with him, and he introduced me to Cash. And so I was so lucky to be at that moment. Uh, And then it was so amazing. Isn't it amazing? 40, 50 years later, you go back and write a book about that same person? It is amazing. Did you get to know him a little bit beyond that uh, that that uh, that gathering? Did you become yeah. friendly with him? I did. I did a long piece for Rolling Stone, a Q and A Q&A in the early seventies uh, with Cash, and I would see him once in a while when he would come to town. I, I spent time. I, I visited him at his house in Nashville. He was a very nice, warm guy, and he was grateful for. I had kind of helped him a lot in the beginning, and so I would write a story about him every, you know, with five or ten years or something so we had a good relationship it wasn't like you're calling each other on the phone or anything like that but it's it's it, when you come to town we might have dinner or do a story or something like that so when did you first start covering paul simon or simon and garfunkel did you have a sense memory of your first piece uh, that that covered uh, either of those uh, entities yeah i covered i did the bridge over troubled water tour their last tour uh, in the Long Beach Arena in 1969, just a short review of it. And then I reviewed Paul's first album. The first time I, uh, then I, I, first time I met him or met Simon and Garfunkel was on his solo tour, which was, what, 72 or 73? Mm-hmm. And I sat down for a couple hours with him at, at a hotel in Los Angeles. And he was so interesting because he's so thoughtful and so smart. Uh, he was what probably is articulate as anybody I've ever interviewed. 
Well, he's also very competitive. I mean, we we talked about Dylan earlier, and we, you mentioned as you and you chronicle it in his book, in, in your book rather, that uh, you know, huge baseball fan. He has this competitive spirit about him, doesn't he? Oh, he sure does. <laughs> and sometimes, and he's uh, and he uses one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting. He uses a word so precisely. Uh, I'll say something. And he'll say, "I'm not competitive. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just devoted or something." You know, he is competitive. Certainly, he's he was competitive as a young ba- player in baseball. He was only five one or five two, and he was playing on his high school team. He was an all star. Uh, he stole home plate, uh, went to third base. He stole home plate one time, which is very hard to do. Uh, and everything he did, and one of the great things he did early in our re- meetings, he gave me a list of some people he thought, thought I ought to talk to who could help explain him. And remember, this he's never talking to a biographer before. That's I was really excited about that. He agreed to talk to me a long time. We ended up talking 100 hours, and he told me about these other people to talk to, too. And one of them was his closest childhood friend, Bobby Susser. And Bobby was just great. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I emailed him maybe a hundred times during writing the book with a question about this and a question about that. And he talked about that the nature of Paul, this competitiveness, the same kid in baseball who would do anything to beat you was the same way in the recording studio. Yeah, you end, I believe you end the book with a quote from Bobby, uh, Bobby yes, Susser. Is that right? Bobby was great. Yeah, a very significant figure. So how do you go from, uh, you know, covering Paul Simon uh, throughout the early days of his career to getting to the point where he wants, he gives you access uh, to his story that he's never given anyone. Can you talk about how you, you got involved in this project? Yeah, well, see, again, I, would, I, I, I didn't write about Paul as much as I did, uh, let's say, Springsteen or... Uh, Johnny Cash? David. Yeah. Because I didn't, there was no relationship. We, we, the only time we would see each other, you know, he wasn't that kind of person where he, he would kind of be always be available for a story. You know, Springsteen, whenever he did an album, you know, or go on the road, he would talk. You could go on the road with him and spend time with him and stuff. You got to know that that person. With Paul, it was only talk about the. He was only going to talk about the album when it came out. So I talked to him again about, uh, you know, uh, I guess the Still Crazy album. But uh, I didn't have this kind of conti- this kind of continuing uh, relationship, uh, except when he went to Graceland. I, I asked him, uh, asked his publicist about going with him, and so I was the only American journalist who went with him to Zimbabwe when he did the, the, that first Graceland show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but anyway, so when I when I get through with the Johnny Cash book, I start thinking, well, who can I write about next? And I went back to that Dylan interview about the creative process, and and I, 
I, you know, there was a very small list. Um, we can talk about that sometime, about how do you choose a subject. <laughs> of course, yeah. Because that's a very important thing. That's your most important step. Who do you choose? You want to choose somebody, to my mind, who's significant, who you're really interested in, and who's going to be remembered 50 years from now. And that eliminates 99% of the people who make pop records today. <laughs> I, I have to concur, yeah. <laughs> no offense to them, but it just, they're not at that level. You, you have your John Lennon, you have your uh, Springsteen, Dylan's, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell. There's very few people, I think, that are, that are worth spending two or three years writing about. Uh, so anyway, so I was thinking about Paul, but someone else was already writing a book about Paul. Somebody else had already announced that he was writing a book about Paul. And uh, so I said, well, that's out. And I spent another four or five months trying to think of who to write about, and I kept coming back to Paul, that songwriting. How does he write those songs? How, what's behind the boxer? What's behind Questions for the Angels, which is a song I love, which was in his So Beautiful, So What album? Yeah. And so I called his manager. Uh, who also works with Dylan, interestingly. Uh, and I said, I understand, I understand someone's doing a book about Paul. Are you cooperating with them? They said, no, 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 we're not, we have with nothing to do with that book. We don't want to, uh, we, we hope it never even comes out. And I said, well, if I did a book on Paul, would you think about it? Would you consider it? That him talking, you know, that he would be, be agreeable to talk and, and, you know, give me access and so forth. And I said, let me send you the book on Johnny Cash. And so I sent that. And so I'm not sure what combination. If it's just because Paul knew me from the past and felt I was an honest writer and stuff, or if he loved the Cash book or whatever it was, uh, I got together with him in L.A. And, and, uh, and we started talking about the book. And one thing was he wondered how much time it would take. Because, again, that music, you know, he doesn't want to take a time. He, he wants to work on his music. Mm -hmm. And I said, try to meet for a five hours a day, one day a month for a year, that'd be 60 hours. And he kind of said, okay, I can do that. And it turned out it was it was much different. You know, we, we met for a much longer period of time over the, in the longer period of, you know, a couple of years. Uh, but so that was it. They, the idea that I said, uh, I want to do a book about the, your artistry. I, I think it's uh, it's important and and I think he also felt he could, that by doing the book, he could end a lot of the other books that would be written about him otherwise. Uh, you know, books that are often based largely on uh, what's been written before or who they can get to talk to him and so forth. But no one was ever going to get to Bobby Susser. No one was ever going to get to these Paul Simon. No one was going to get to Paul Simon uh, unless the, there was a certain degree of cooperation. But the important thing is, and he, we agreed from the start, that it would be my editorial control. I would be the one who finally said, this is what goes in the book and this is what doesn't go in the book. I would talk to him about certain issues, but it was always my final decision. And he never violated that. I kept worrying, oh, because I'd heard about Neil Young had done a book with somebody, and halfway through he didn't like it and, and told the guy he didn't want the book done anymore and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I was always worried about that because it's delicate when someone comes around asking personal questions about your life, especially a person who's as private as Paul. Yeah, and I mean, there's a whole entanglement here that I want to get to, because as music fans, we develop a certain intimacy with an artist and their work, and then if we are if we become music journalists or critics, that intimacy kind of elevates. You can conceivably get to know someone by being in touch with them a little bit. You interview them, and then I can only imagine that all of, that, all of those lines blur when you're an authorized biographer. Were you concerned about coming across as objective as possible in writing this book about Paul's life? 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I just made it clear. Uh, I mean, again, we had the understanding at the beginning. It was my book, uh, and I... Uh, I, you know, I, but I wanted to make sure I wanted to be as objective as possible. You know, I, there was a time that came up I, early on. I I contacted Art Garfunkel about you know interviewing him, and he said he was reluctant. And he said, I said, you know, why is that? Because you have such a big part in Paul's life. And he says, well, if you were writing about Simon and Garfunkel, I would talk to you, but I don't want to talk to you for a Paul Simon book. And I. They were they were very apart at this time, and I kind of assumed that he meant he didn't want to do anything that helped Paul. And I said, look, this isn't Paul's book; it's my book, and I'll treat you with the same respect I treat Paul. Uh, I'll you know I'll quote you honestly and so forth. And he said, well, let me think about it. He said, then he said his publisher, he was writing a, a memoir, didn't want him to do it because he didn't want him to give me some of his best lines. And, and I said. Art, your book's coming out first. He said, oh, okay. And then, uh, I, so for a couple of years, I kept going after him. Finally, he wrote me a letter saying, I don't want to do an interview. And that was the end of that. But, uh, I, you know, I wanted to make clear in the book, and, I, and when I turned it in, to, before I turned it into the publisher, I had one of my best friends, a former editor of the Los Angeles Times, read it. And I said, I want you to do two things. I want to make sure it's an objective book. It doesn't look like it's something that, Paul, you know, that wrote a love letter to Paul, and secondly, I don't want to look like I'm beating beating up on Art Garfunkel, because there's negative things about Garfunkel in the book, and so he looked at both, he read both things and assured me that it was object, it looked to him as an objective book, and it didn't look like I was going out of my way to, be, you know, pick on Garfunkel. Well, in the book, Art Garfunkel kind of reminded me of the shark in the film Jaws. Uh, <laughs> Really, he, he kind of comes and goes. Like I, you're kind of aware that Art Garfunkel is there in Paul Simon's life was a huge force in Paul Simon's life, but at some point, Paul has to jettison him because of various. I mean, I don't want to give too much away. I think the dynamic is well represented in the book, but separate from the book, Bob, like what is your perception of their the Simon and Garfunkel dynamic? It's been very rocky. It seems to be now that. Paul has sort of indicated he's wrapping up his career. I don't sense that there's going to be much of a coming together again because there have been so many, you know, re-engagements of Simon and Garfunkel. What is your perception of their dynamic? Uh, you mean right now? Sure. Yeah, it's the furthest apart it's ever been. Uh, I don't think there's any communication. Uh, you know, and at one time it was a wonderful relationship. They were great pals, uh, you know, as teenagers, and they had a great time on the old Friends tour. That wasn't fake. They weren't faking it up there. That was a great tour for them. But in between all of that were all kinds of problems, which really dates back uh, to, I think, the basic relationship uh, of, of, mu of music. Uh, again, Paul, Art has that beautiful voice, but Paul writes all the songs. And uh, and ultimately, he wanted more out of music than just writing folk songs and singing with Art Garfunkel because that there's a certain thing that that he couldn't do with Garfunkel. So that's why I think he left him. He left him because he he, he wanted to be he wanted more as an artist. Uh, and he could not have done me and Julio or, or the whole Graceland album. It would know, be ludicrous trying to have that as a Simon and Garfunkel album. So he needed that to grow. That, and Quincy Jones, who I interviewed for the book, because I wanted to have talk about artistry with Quincy, and he said that's when he knew Paul was an artist, when he walked away from Simon and Garfunkel when it was the biggest group in the world.
Well, speaking of Quincy Jones, I know Quincy Jones encouraged Paul Simon when he started to explore the music that uh, eventually emerged on Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints. It is a very controversial period in Paul Simon's life. In this day and age, we we talk a lot about cultural appropriation and what's right and what's wrong. Uh, was he was Paul particularly skittish about how you were going to deal with that? I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. I thought he. I think he's pretty confident in his decision. And he thinks, uh, I, I think the things that Paul was probably most nervous about is not so much the, what I would say about the music or what somebody cared about him or what they thought about him, because he said once in a while, you ought to talk to so-and-so, he's not going to like me, but you ought to talk to him. Uh, I think he wanted to, he didn't want his personal life, he didn't want the personal life to be invaded uh, as much. He didn't want something that would, you know, probably hurt Edie. But there's nothing I came across necessarily would do that, you know, so it wasn't, I didn't have to hide something. But I think that's what he was always concerned about, how it might affect his family. Well, you spoke to uh, Carrie Fisher, I understand, right? That was great. She was fabulous. She lives just like two miles from me. Uh, and I had never met her or anything, of course, and she didn't know who I was, but, but it was just great. I spent like four hours with her, and she was so funny and so, uh, re, you know, open and revealing. I just loved spending time with her. But you did not speak with Edie Brickell, is that right? No, that's right, because, again, that's the family issue. Uh, I didn't talk to Paul's kids, uh, because when he and Edie got married, Edie is more private than Paul, apparently. You know, I said, when am I going to talk to Edie, Paul? She said, I don't think she's going to talk to you. And I thought I was disappointed at first, and I said, well, why is that? And she said, he said, because when they get mar- they got married, he'd seen what fame, again, fame is, the destructiveness of fame, uh, and public knowing about you as a private person, he saw so many people get destroyed by that over the years, and, and their families torn apart. Uh, he and Edie agreed, look, we're never going to talk to the pub, the press about our, our family. We're never going to take pictures for People magazine of the family at home to help promote an album. We're going to move to Connecticut to get away from the big city, and so people won't, you know, the kids can have a normal life in the country. Uh, that was their goal, and so they're they never going to, we're never going to talk to people, and so that's, they continue that during the book. Nothing's going to break up that. That's more important to him than anything now is that relationship. Well, one of the things that really focuses your interest in songwriting is is something I, I've seen some, I've read a lot of rock biographies, I've seen some people do this, but you make a real point of publishing whole lyrics, like the entire uh, a song's entire lyrics. What what prompted that decision? Sometimes there's fragments and whatnot, but you there's various points where you're talking about a song and you just publish the whole song. Because I love lyrics. You know, I love to hear lyrics. And I love to be reminded of them as a reader. You know, I think it's so great to, if you're talking about American tune, and okay, that you can think about it yourself, and you can try to remember parts of it. You might go listen to it in the rate, on the record player. But if you can... Uh, if you can see it and read it, and you know, uh, I, th- I just think it, it's it's evocative to me. It's it's nice. It's sweet. And uh, but it's so funny when I did the Johnny Cash book. I had a lot of his lyrics in the book, and there's some something in the on the internet where people comment about books. It's not like a uh, professional book critic. It's just people give their viewings, and someone says, "Why did he have to pad the book out with all these lyrics?" <laughs> 
the Johnny Cash book. The first review or first comment I saw of that same internet thing about the Simon book was, I don't think he needed all those lyrics in the book, but I think they're. I just personally love them. I think they're. They're. Uh, I think they add a warmth and a kind of a. Re- they kind of help remind you of what's so great about it. Why you're reading this book in the first place? Absolutely, it made me want to revisit the records, and and I did. So I thank you for that. Well, f- well, finally, there's something of a scoop. Uh, towards the end of this book, and maybe it's not really a scoop anymore because on some level we all know that Paul's current tour is is purported to be his last, and, and you have this very lovely passage about him going to Hawaii and, and coming back and realizing, for, for a vacation, and coming back and realizing he's really said all he wants to say. Do you think that's true? Do you think he's sort of finished as a artistic force publicly? Well, I don't know. I mean, Tom Friedman, who's one of his best friends, can't imagine him not writing another song. And I, that's probably true. At some point, he's going to want to write another song. But does he want to go to the grind of making an album, which takes a year and a half, then going on tour? Uh, I think, he, I think. remember for years, from, from the time he's 16 to the time of Graceland, his, he's sacrificed so much for music. You know, personal relationships, uh Lots of stuff, because he was there working all the time on music. If he wasn't on the road, he'd be writing songs. He'd be recording songs. He's not a guy who just goes in and records in one or two days. It takes him months to do an album, because he he, he gets with musicians, their intricate arrangements. It's all, it's it's just he goes so far beyond most record makers in terms of, of uh, the end product. That's why it's always so good. You know, he, it, it's, it, you know, there's not a bad Paul Simon album. There might be one that's a B minus or a B, but they're mostly A's. <laughs> it's true. I agree with you there. Are, are you? Whereas there... you find other people, even our beloved Bob Dylan, and he's made some C minus albums or D albums. Sure. Uh, but and I don't mean to pick on Bob because remember because I love Bob. But he talk, takes Springsteen's. Springsteen has not made every album great. Uh, David Bowie has made every album great. Joni Mitchell has made, but Simon every album is pretty damn great. Uh, so all that takes, it's a lot of pressure, it's a lot of time, it's a lot you're sacrificing, a lot you're losing. Uh, and then after Graceland, it gave him a certain confidence because he had lost everything before Graceland. The One Trick Pony was a failure of the movie. The Hearts and Bones album was a commercial failure. Uh, uh, Carrie Fisher divorces him. So he's, And then he read in Billboard magazine, which I mentioned in the book, which is a trade publication, uh, they had a year-end edition which said, next year we're going to look for new voices. People want new voices. We're not going to play people like Paul Simon anymore. So he's sitting there at the depth of his despair. People don't, don't even want to hear him anymore. So he goes off to great, and he says, well, I'm going to do something that I want to do and that's exciting. No one else would have ever gone to South Africa and made an album like that because foreign music doesn't sell in America. You know, artists keep away from it for a reason. But Paul goes down there, even though people are saying, oh, you shouldn't go down there and record with South African music, even uh, musicians, even if they want to record with you. So he goes through all of that stuff, makes that brilliant album, which I think maybe is his masterpiece, and he realizes that all that he'll always have his music, you know, the music is there. That's his bridge over troubled water. And he became a warmer person after that. He want, he began gradually seeking out other things he wanted to do in his life. And then by this time, 70, what, five years old, 76 years old, he says, you know, I, I, I want to, that I, he found a balance in his life. He wanted to explore other, the other side, the balance, more than maybe the music for a while. 
Uh, and we'll see how long that lasts. You know, maybe he'll just make an occasional record. Maybe he'll write another Broadway show. There's other things he can do, but he didn't want to get into the to the grind, if you will, of making another album, making another tour with that all take like three and a half years or so. Maybe he could use that. He, he says, "Let me see what else I can do with that three and a half years." Yeah, I can see that too. I think you're you're on point there. This book is is clearly a way of kind of affirming Paul Simon's legacy from. That's my read on it. That's my read from this conversation. If there's any one particular thing that you'd like people to take away from this book, uh, what would that be? Well, you know, I think one thing is nice. Uh, it, you know, that Paul, I, I think he's he is one of the all-time great, maybe one of the top ten songwriters ever in America. Uh, so I think they, you know, and I think he is underappreciated because of the lack of personal persona, and, and uh, you know, people just didn't. He was a stranger to a lot of people. Uh, you know, they just don't think of Paul Simon right away when they think of the songs. They think of Bob Dylan because they, they have this image of this guy, Bob Dylan, and they have an image of, of, of Bruce Springsteen, but there's no image of Paul Simon. Paul Simon's a mystery to, to people in many ways. So I, I would hope the book would point out how great he is. And secondly, what a struggle it is and be an inspiration to people about how if you really want to be good at something, you have to really commit yourself to it. You can't just go in and copy what somebody else is doing or taking an easy way out. That it's a, it, 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 you know, he, All the, the songwriting he did came from hard work. You know, he's a talented guy, but also he had to learn how to how to approach that talent and to protect it. And that's the, the hard of the book to me is what great songwriters do to continue their work over the years, so I so I'd love the two part. It's like a two. It's like a two trains on on two tracks. One part of the book is his personal life, and one part is the creative process. And I try to keep about a balance of those, to so that both the person who looks at the book for the personal life would be pleased, and the person who wanted to know more about the creative process would be illuminated. Well, you mentioned uh, hard work there, and you mentioned also earlier that you have, you know, there's a short list of people you'd like to talk about or, or write about, and one of them was Johnny Cash, one of them was Paul Simon. What's next for you, Bob? Do you have a project lined up? No, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't know. You know that's, that's, <laughs> I've got two or three people in mind, but I don't want to mention it because I don't want to have somebody else say, "Oh, I'll rush and do try to do a book on that first or. I didn't. I want to talk to the people myself first and explain it rather than have them read about it or hear about it. Well, the safe thing to say is you have plans of some kind. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so where can people go on the Internet to learn more about you and this book, Paul Simon, The Life? Okay, I have a website. Uh, thanks for asking. It's Robert Hilburn, and that's H-I-L-B-U-R-N. It's like hill we're burning with one L. So Robert Hilburn online. Dot com is that what it goes? Yeah, I guess it is. RobertGilbertOnline.com. Okay, and and the book is out on Simon and Schuster, correct? It comes out next Tuesday. Next Tuesday. All right, uh, Bob. This was a tremendous honor and a pleasure to have you on this show. I'm a fan of your work, and I thank you for writing this book, and I thank you for your time today, and and best of luck in the future. Thank you so much. Every question was good, and every minute was well worth the time. I enjoyed it so much. Special thanks again to Robert Hilburn for being on this, the 395th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on Spotify and YouTube and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for for some reason, or if you wish to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. That's V-I-S-H-K-H-A-N-N-A. 
creativecontrol.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Vish Creative with a K or follow me at Vish Khanna. You can also listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please kindly visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. I couldn't do this without you. And uh, the fact that you're listening and pledging and telling people about it, it, it means the world. So thanks again. Also, I want to thank all the people who support the show with uh, in-kind contributions as well and uh, for sponsoring the show in various ways. Thanks to the uh, crew at the uh, Entertainment One Podcast Network and also CFRU 93.3 FM. I couldn't do this show without them. I'd like to thank my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use the uh, uh, the instrumental version of his amazing song, The Rest Is Yet to Come, to end this show each and every week. And like I said before, thanks to you for listening to this program. It means a lot. There's more episodes coming. I hope you'll listen to those too. And if you're behind, just take your time. There's no rush. Just catch up on episodes whenever you like. All right. I will talk to you very, very soon. Goodbye for now.